Well, this evening we return to the book of Joshua, and this is the penultimate uh, sermon. This happens to be Joshua 24, verses 1 through 15, actually. We'll be looking at uh, 1 through 28. 1 through 15 happens to be the, verse, the verses that I've preached uh, the most on in my preaching ministry. Uh, so pray that when I get to verse 15, I'm not too exuberant or too happy or too whatever the case may be, you know, because that's the, the verse where, uh, well, you know, we're called to serve. Anyhow, this is God's holy and inerrant word. If you're utilizing a pew Bible, you'll find it on uh, page 198. On 198, if you're using a pew Bible, 24th chapter of Joshua, starting at verse 1, this is God's holy and inerrant word, so let's give careful attention to it. The word of God. Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river Euphrates and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau, and I gave Esau the hill country of Seir to possess. But Jacob and his children went down to Egypt, and I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt with what I did in the midst of it. And afterward, I bought you out. Then I bought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea, and the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. And when they cried to the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians and made the sea come upon them and cover them. And your eyes saw what I did in Egypt, and you lived in the wilderness a long time. Then I brought you to the land of the Amorites who lived on the other side of the Jordan. They fought with you, and I gave them into your hand, and you took possession of their land, and I destroyed them before you. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and fought against Israel, and he sent and invited Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. But I would not listen to Balaam. Instead, he blessed you. So I delivered you out of his hand, and you went over the Jordan and came to Jericho. And the leaders of Jericho fought against you. And also the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And I gave them into your hand. And I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out before you, the two kings of the Amorites. It was not by your sword or by your bow. I gave you a land on which you had not labored and cities that you had not built, and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, Choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. 
Then the people answered, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. And who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went and among all the peoples though we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. But Joshua said to the people, you are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins if you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods. Then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. And the people said to Joshua, no, but we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said to the people, you are witnesses against yourself that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. He said, then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, the Lord our God, we will serve and his voice we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and put in place statutes and rules for them at Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. And he took a large stone and set it up there under the terebinth that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness against us, for it has heard all the words of the Lord that he spoke to us. Therefore, it shall be a witness against you, lest you deal falsely with your God. So Joshua sent the people away, every man to his inheritance. Again, our Lord and our God is our desire to grow in the knowledge of our Lord, to grow in his image as you have ordained for us too. And so we ask that you would take these words of this text and use them for your glory and for your purposes, molding and shaping us, equipping us, moving deep into the reaches of our hearts and causing us to grow in our zeal, understanding and knowledge and love for our Lord. Would you do these things to the praise of your glory? And pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, for our 30th anniversary, Dorothy and I revisited the exact place on Howard University's campus where we first met. It was also the same area where I first asked her to go on our first date, at which point she said to me, well, I don't know you. You could be a rapist. <laughs> we also took a picture at the exact place on campus where we first exchanged phone numbers the following semester. What we experienced or were experiencing as we revisited those specific places that were foundational to, to where we were at our 30-year mark was, in my mind, a sort of covenant renewal. It brought back memories of, of what we had experienced together, what we had endured like the, the roof of the, the, the Howard University a dorm that was provided to us for our graduate and law students. We lived in there because we were married. The, the roof that was a four to five uh, feet section of the roof fell down where I would have normally been standing. We endured that together. We also endured, for instance, Dorothy being three months pregnant uh, while playing for the conference championship with an opportunity to go play against Duke University in the national uh, tournament 
This so after we had promised her coach that she would not be getting pregnant until she graduated. So we endured a lot. But anyhow, our 30-year mark brought to mind you know, the fact that we were in this, this covenant, and most importantly, we were reminded of God's goodness and faithfulness towards us, his covenant children. Well, there is that same feel for me to this text. You see, the text says that Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem. And in doing so, we're not supposed to miss the fact that it was at Shechem that God first delivered his promise to Abraham. It was at Shechem where he first entered into his covenant with Abraham, a covenant which promised to make Abraham the father of a great nation. And what does Joshua now have before him? A nation who had conquered all the other nations in the land. A nation that was feared by those both near and far and one that was numerous in number just as God has promised. So before Joshua even spoke a word as we're going to hear, the place where they were, Shechem, testified to the faithfulness of God, the God who had called Abraham. And now he, Joshua, begins to speak to them in what takes the shape of a covenant renewal crafted much like the suzerain vassal treaties that were customarily utilized by kings and their subject, often other nations who they had conquered. Thus, here Joshua identifies the suzerain God. Thus says the Lord, he says, the God of Israel. It is God himself who's about to interact with his people, his vassal, and he's going to do so now through his man, Joshua. By God's design, we have a front row seat to that which is about to unfold. For you see, this is purposely so because all that is displayed and said here is of great impact and import to us. You see, God's attributes, his actions, and his heart for us is on display on the pages of the scripture, just as it was for his people Israel, and just as it was for them, we too are called to respond to what we hear and see. And so with those words in hand, I'd like to comment on this text under three headings. The case for God, the call for God to serve, rather, the call to serve, and the resolve to serve. So first, the case for God. In verses 2 through 13, God, again speaking through Joshua, recounts the covenant history between himself and his people, Israel. He did so in this passage by, among other things, reminding them of his grace, his power, his protection, and his provision. His grace was revealed in his calling of Abraham. For you see, lest they or we are tempted to believe that Abraham grabbed himself up by his bootstrap and commended himself before God. We're told in verses 2 and 3, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I, I emphasis, took your father, Abraham, from beyond the river. Abraham, like his father, was an idolater, Worshiping idols created by hand, not by the God who created him. Abraham had no thought whatsoever of running after God, the God who created in his image 
and for his purpose. And so, it would, and so it is with us. None of us chose God, nor can we, or nor did we want to. Paul makes that abundantly clear in Ephesians where he writes, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of dis disobedience. Our passions and desires, you see, were for anything else but God. Our hearts were and continue, as John Calvin said, to be idol factories. And so neither Abraham nor his offspring could boast of any seed of goodness that commanded, it commanded Abraham before God. God chose him as he chose us. He rescued us just as he did Abraham, or as it is written, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, completely unable to do anything, when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And again, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, lest any should boast. None of us could boast about commending ourselves before God. It is a good and gracious God that has extended his grace. So next in our journey, we find God reminding them at his, of his power. Look at the second part of verse 4 through verse 7. It reads, but Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. And I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt with what I did in the midst of it. And afterward, I bought you out. Then I bought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea. And the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. And when they cried to the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians and made the sea come upon them and cover them. And your eyes saw what I did in Egypt. Now of note here is the fact that the people of Egypt worshipped all sorts of false gods, including the all supposedly alleged all-powerful Ra, the sun god. We're all familiar with the fact that the God delivered Israel by means of ten plagues. But what we might not be so familiar with is to remember or know is that those plagues all represented or all represented the conquering of a specific God that Israel, Egypt rather, worshipped. And so God went down in Egypt and busted up all their false god, demonstrating the power that he had over everything that they could have sent towards him. So now God's people had respite. They were left out of slavery, out of bondage. But alas, it was only for a brief moment because Pharaoh with a hardened heart pursued Israel. If he only knew it was just another opportunity that God was utilizing to demonstrate his power to his people. For as soon as it looked like Pharaoh had the upper hand on God's people, God's people are backed up against the Red Sea with nowhere to go. It would have been the worst particular strategy if you were a military person to have caused people to leave a place and end up in a place like that. And so they ended up in a situation that looked like a no way out situation. But how many of you know that when there seems to be no way, that God is a way maker, that God can make a way where there is no way, 
And he often does that in our lives to demonstrate his power so that we can know who he is. He's revealing his attributes to his creation so that they can glorify him and enjoy him. And so it is with us when it seemed like we too were without any hope. When we had no hopes of reconciliation with the God who we love, God provided a way out of no way by sending his only begotten son, Jesus, to die for us. But going back to our text, that's not how the story ends. Because next, God, through Joshua, goes on to remind them of how he protected them. He does so utilizing the account of the false prophet Balaam and the Moabite king Balak, who attempted to have Balaam curse Israel. God, however, would not allow it. Balaam persisted in trying to get his mule to take him where he needed to go to fulfill the king's request. But God went so far as to cause a mule to speak, thus turning Balaam back from what he intended in his heart against God's people. Instead of cursing, God made it so that Balaam pronounced a blessing on God's people, not a curse. God protected his people. Now, I want you to know that Ralph Davis said this, not me. Ralph Davis mentioned the fact that, you know, if it wasn't for God's mercy, Balaam would have been struck down. But God turned the mule so that the mule could speak, so that Balaam was the one that turned into the ass. Again, I didn't say that. I'll show you the book. Okay. <laughs> now, I've already talked about God's power. But notice how it extends through verse 11 and 12. And you went over the Jordan and came to Jericho, and the leaders of Jericho fought against you, and also the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hivites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and I gave them into your hand. And I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out before you, the two kings of the Amorites. It was not by your sword or by your bow. It was by and through God's power, his might, and his strength. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts in Zechariah 4.6. So finally, God reminded them that, it was, that through it all, he was their provider. He was the one that provided for them in each and every way and every instance. He said, I gave you a land on which you had not labored and cities you had not built, and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olives and orchards that you did not plant. He could have reminded them how he awesomely preserved the very clothes that his parent, that their parents wore in the wilderness so that even the shoes that they wore for 40 years did not wear out. Anyone of you have any shoes that you've had for 40 years and it's not worn out that you've been wearing every day? And so the case for God has been laid before his people. And that brings us to our second heading, the call to serve God. In verse 14, we immediately have a change in voice. For it goes from saying, thus says the Lord, to the voice of Joshua now speaking and saying, now therefore. That is, since these are the facts laid out before you concerning our God. Since these are the facts and you know that he delivered you and you are unable to deliver yourself, 
since you know that his power kept you, since you know that he is the one that protected you, since you know all these things, how are you going to react? What are you going to do? Now, therefore, since these are the facts, since you have seen and experienced his grace, his power, his protection, and his provision, is there anyone in here that would say that they did not or have not experienced these things? Since you have seen that our God is like no other God, he is faithful in all his ways, mighty to save, merciful, all-powerful, all-knowing, ever-present, since you know these things to be so, Joshua says, I beseech you, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. That is from a pure heart, sincere about following God with great devotion to him. And what does that look like? Our text tells us, put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. Now, brothers and sisters, I want you to notice something. Joshua does not say, if you have any gods. He just says, put away the gods. It's amazing. After God had done all he had done for them, for these folks, and you know it, according to Joshua, they still were engaged and, and, and prone to the same false worship that Abraham had engaged in. They still were engaged in entertaining the gods that they saw get spanked in Egypt. They still were gravitating towards those things. And so here he has to exhort them to walk away from that which they were prone to engaging in, to walk in a way that in the cases where anyone were that they would walk away. And so folks, if there were ever a scenario that revealed the depths of man's depravity and the need for God's grace, this is it. But lest we look down on these folks, as 1 Corinthians 10 said that they were given to us in the wilderness as an example that we should stay away from that. And so lest we look down to that. Again, I mentioned the fact that Calvin said that our hearts are idol factories. And yet on this side of the cross, we have, and this side of the cross, we have much more revelation than they did. We have the revelation of Christ's finished work. We have the indwelling presence of his spirit. And yet, if we were to each man go on his knees before God and say, reveal the idols of my heart, we would start taking idols out of our left and right pocket and dropping them down and see that we have just as much idols that we were worshiping as these, or prone to worship as the people of Israel. Knowing that which I've just stated about God's people, Joshua moves forward an exhortation that I'd like to address under our third heading and final heading, the resolve to serve. Here we find both Joshua and the people of Israel communicating a resolve to serve God who had marvelously revealed himself to them and was going about the business of reiterating or renewing his covenant with them. Here we hear Joshua saying, And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region 
beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Now, interestingly, there is something here that I, I mentioned the fact that I've preached this text more than any other text that I've ever preached. But there's something that I had previously not picked up on or emphasized, and this happens to be um, <clears throat> this. Joshua's not calling the people to make a choice in, right here between God and false idols. Look at that closely. But rather the false gods that Abraham served or the false god that the people who replaced them had been serving, who they replaced in the land. He was saying, go serve the God that is Abraham, that Abraham used to serve or serve the gods that are in the land if you don't choose to serve God. And so commenting on this, Ralph Davis wrote, some may be disturbed at the way the evangelist Joshua calls for decision. Is he serious about which pagan gods they should choose? How could that really be a choice? I think that is precisely Joshua's point, he goes on to say. He is using a reductio ad absurdum, that is, establishing a claim by showing that the opposite scenario would lead to absurdity or contradiction. He says, serve Yahweh, but if you don't, choose which non-gods you will serve. To which they would then retort, but that's stupid. Choosing between pagan gods is really absurd. To which Joshua would then retort, that's precisely my point. If you reject Yahweh, you are stupid. And stupid is, and stupid does, remember that? <laughs> and the only options left are so absurd that they make no sense at all. Have you noticed how society, as they have put God out of the schools, how absurd things look today? Are you, you wondering why men don't know if they're men and women don't know if they're women? And all the other stuff that you see going on in our culture today, are you wondering why? And the funny thing about this is you can go in Christian churches that have that same dilemma. Churches that profess to be Christian have that same dilemma. And so that's the point that he's trying to shoot here. He wants you to look at this and say, whoa, there is no other God but God. Everything else is absurd. Everything else is foolish. Everything else is stupid. And so hence Joshua says, but as for me, recognizing the absurdity of that. He says, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Remember, this is Joshua whom God called in chapter 1, who seemed to have some degree of, of a lack of courage and so on and so forth. But he has demonstrated nothing but a faithful life before the people and before us. And so if there's anyone that could exhort folks to say I will serve the Lord, it is he. Because he has been doing it, and the way this is structured, he's not just saying, I will, and it's past tense. It's I will then, I was then, I will now, and I'm resolving my heart to do so in the future. Because that is the only thing that I have, is the God that has revealed himself to me. Peter said to Jesus, where should you, we go? You alone have the words of life. You alone are the one who has the answer to all of life's issues. 
So in verses 16 through 18, the people follow suit, asserting that the choice or desire to forsake the Lord and serve other gods was nowhere to be found on their radar. But here I'm reminded of the apostle Peter. Whenever the issue of resolve came up, Peter was like, there is no way I'm leaving the Lord. I will die for you today. And as soon as tribulation came, Peter was like, you know, Bugs Bunny or, or um, the roadrunner, gone. You know? Peter did not have the resolve that he thought he had. And none of us do. None of us do. And so it is with us, I believe, Joshua filled with the wisdom of God, recognized that fact, and therefore said to them, verse 19, you are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sin. The gap between us and our Lord is infinite. And that's why we had to have our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ come on our behalf. A couple of things I'd like to say here is, is I try to bring this to an end. You can say all day long that you will endeavor to serve the Lord. But if you don't practically, intentionally plan your way, if you don't intentionally, practically come to church, if you don't intentionally and practically avail yourselves of the means of grace that God has given you, then your path will be filled with things that will pull you away. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, Jeremiah said. And so our hearts will deceive us into walking away, away from the things of the Lord. Second, you can't save yourself and you can't live the Christian life by yourself apart from God. Saying the same thing, but letting you know that it is in Christ that we live, is in Christ that we breathe, move, have our being. And so we are to walk in our Lord. We should do exactly or recognize exactly what Joshua is saying to be true. So while it was highly commendable of Israel to affirm their resolve as they did in verses 21 and 24, they should have begged, we should beg that God would have in the same way and with the same power that he had exercised on their behalf, continue to be their strength, continue to be the source of any and all accomplishments that they were going to achieve. Our chapter ends with Joshua bringing to close the covenant renewal, renewal process with the people that day. He does so by putting in place statutes and rules for them at Shechem. He wrote all that was said in the book of the law. That's what we literally have in our scriptures now is what Joshua recorded. He wrote it all. And then he put up a large stone and set it up by the sanctuary of the Lord. That stone was to remind them of all that they heard and all that was said. And so I'd like to end our time by saying these things were set up as a means of grace for God's people both the word and the memorial stone. Today, we have the word and we have the Lord's Supper. Today, we have God's people. Today, we have the indwelling presence of God's spirit. He is working in and through us by his spirit. But we've also been given the means of grace by which to exercise our resolve. So none of us has the ability to reach out to Christ as Joshua indicated but all of us, if we are professing, are recipients of the grace 
that he has extended, the power that he's shown, the protection that we have, and the provision, all that we have. Scriptures even say that God is the one that gives the power to get wealth. And when I look at that word give, it's not saying he gave them wealth in the past. It's saying that everything that you get comes from God on an ongoing basis. Therefore, that's why we say give us this day our daily bread. God has been good to us. As Joshua said to them, God has been good to us. God has kept us. It is by his grace that we've been delivered from the powers of darkness and are being kept even now by his spirit, seeing now that God has done all that he's done for us. They enter again into this renewal of this covenant. Are you in your own heart saying, God, grab hold of me because unless you hold me, I won't hold on. Are you resolving in your heart to put away the things that will distract you from following the God that you serve and that you love? Or are you holding on with a hard grip on those things that will keep you from growing in grace? Jesus said, if your eyes offend or sin, pluck it out. If your hand, chop it off. I'd be praying and say, well, help me out so my eyes don't do something. Because I wouldn't want my hands chopped off and my eyes digged out. So can you help a brother out? That's why I'd be praying. I don't know about you, all right? Don't make me sick. I don't need nothing. Just let me serve you. I'm good, all right? But the point is, we should resolve in our heart that that is how we're going to be. And we should beg God to expend those mercies that are renewed every day and the grace that he so lavishly provides to us as we humbly walk before him, hoping that he would use us mightily in the same way that he used Abraham in our little sphere of influence for his glory and for his purpose. We commit ourselves completely. We beset the, the sins that so easily beset us. We try in resolve to walk away from them and present ourselves as living sacrifices. Jesus did exactly what I am saying we should do. He resolved to serve his father with all his heart, mind, and soul. He, he, he obeyed the scripture perfectly, his act of obedience. He went to the cross and he suffered for the name of God and himself. And we are called to suffer for Christ's sake. And he rose from the dead with all power in his hand. And doing so, we know that we too will be resurrected to new life because he is the first fruit. And so we walk away from the God's that's so prone, that we are so prone to deal with because the God that we serve is real and much better. Amen? Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we thank you for your goodness towards us. We thank you that you are the one that saved us, that you are the one that revealed yourself to us, and there's nothing that we, like Abraham, there's nothing that we did to commend ourselves to you. So as we stand before you, we stand knowing and recognizing, reflecting on the abundant grace that was poured out upon us. And what can be the answer to such grace? What can be the response to such love but to have a wholehearted mind that would want 
to serve you, to be used of you in any way that you choose for any purposes you've set in line with your purposes and your will. Father, would you grab hold of each and every one of us and cause us to, to have a, a desire, a strong desire to, to forsake, first to, to recognize any idols that we might be holding on to and to forsake them in place of such a great love, such great mercy, such a great God. Would you use us, grab hold of our wills and make them your own. Cause us to walk in your statutes. You've given us your word. You've given us your means of grace. Cause us to love them and cause us to desire them, to meditate therein, there and night, and to be used greatly of you for your purpose and for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.